Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, welcome to Crosswinds and also welcome to the Christmas season. If you're like me, this whole season has snuck up on you sort of unaware. I wasn't really ready for it. I'm like, are we in December already? I mean, where did that, where did that come from? But while the season has snuck up on me and you as well, it's still a good thing. I mean, I love Christmas. Do you guys like Christmas? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have, we have the red and the green. We have the trees. We have the lights. It's always fun to drive around at night and see how people decorate their houses. It's a, it's a good thing to be able to have the Christmas season. But as Christians, we know that the Christmas season really isn't about tinsel and toys and presents. What is the Christmas season about? It's about Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. But the problem is why the season of Christmas is supposed to be a time for us to slow down and to savor Jesus, reflect on Jesus, and enjoy Jesus. That usually is the last thing that happens at Christmas. Christmas is the most hectic time of year where we have almost no time to reflect on Jesus. In fact, we spend more time probably thinking about what we're going to have for Christmas dinner than we do actually savoring and enjoying the Son of God. So to help you actually savor Jesus and to enjoy Jesus this Christmas season, we're going to do something a little different for the month of December. Uh, We're putting a pause on our series through the Gospel of Mark just for the month of December. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about uh, the greatness of Jesus Christ and why we should be so incredibly thrilled that God has sent him. And we're going to be doing that by looking at snapshots of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. What will happen, by the way, is I'm going to teach the first and the last messages in this brief Christmas series In the middle, I'll have other members of our pastoral team teaching those messages, and we'll also be rotating across the different campuses, so uh, they'll be teaching, I'll be teaching here this week, and actually I'll be teaching next week in Spencer, and Pastor Jordan will be up here as we sort of tag team it as we work our way through this study. Now, the book of Hebrews that we're going to be looking at, and just a few snapshots of Jesus from it, is actually probably the most Christ-exalting, Christ-expanding book in the entire New Testament. You just cannot get enough of Jesus in that book. It's all over the place. And let me just sort of summarize for you what the the book of Hebrews is all about. If you're following along, take out your outline, and I'll give you the first fill-in-the-blank here. The book of Hebrews can be summarized in one sentence, and here it is. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Jesus is a greater revelation of God than he has ever done before. Jesus provides greater salvation than was ever offered before. Jesus brings brings us greater blessings than we've ever experienced before. Jesus is greater than anything God has ever done in the past in every single possible way. But it's even better than that. Jesus isn't just greater than all that God has previously done, but there is absolutely nothing greater that God could do. In other words, if Jesus wanted to bless us more, and do something greater than he's already done for us through Jesus, he couldn't. 
That is how good we have it through Jesus. There is no room for improvement even for God himself. That's the the theme of this book. Well, what I'd like you to do is we're going to read together our key verses. That's going to be Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. I'd like you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. While you are turning to that passage, what I'm going to do is take a few moments just to tell you some background that is helpful for you in this book, and that'll be under the background section in your outlines. So first of all, Hebrews It was likely written to Christians in Italy. And I say likely written to Christians in Italy because we don't know who it was directly written to, but there's clues in the book that lead us that direction. Like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 24, the writer says, those from Italy send their greetings. Like, why would you really care about that unless you're actually writing to people in Italy? So those from Italy say hello. Incidentally, uh, the book of Hebrews was first recognized as Scripture in Rome, which is Italy. So it it sort of makes sense that that's the direction it was written. The second thing you need to know by way of background is Hebrews was written to Christians who were suffering because they placed their faith in Christ. In fact, they were suffering so much that many of these young Christians were considering giving up their faith. They were considering quitting How do we know that? Once again, there's hints of that and even direct statements of that scattered throughout the book. Like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, let us hold fast to our confession. Don't give up on Jesus. Or Hebrews 10, 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't give up going to church even if it may cost you, even if it may be hard and involve a lot of suffering for Jesus because you need to realize what we have in Jesus is greater than anything God has ever done and what we have in Jesus is greater than anything God could possibly ever do. He could never improve on Jesus. What kind of sufferings were the Christians who were in Rome uh, going through at the time when this letter was written? For what we know as we place it historically on the timeline, this was the time when Nero was in charge of Rome. He was just a nasty dude. The great fire of Rome, he blamed it on Christians and therefore he used it to uh, make Christians his whipping boys. Things he would do is he would take Christians, he would tie them to stakes, cover them in in tar and then light them on fire to serve as human candles while they were still alive. He would take Christians and bring them into the, the arena where they would serve as, a, as those who were killed by gladiators. He'd bring them into the arena and let them be torn apart by wild beasts. That's the kind of suffering that these Christians were facing. But the writer of Hebrews says, don't give up on your faith. Remember what we have in our faith. Jesus is something better than God has ever done. And there's nothing he can improve upon to be something even greater than, he's, than he can do. Another thing to tell you about by way of background, the author of Hebrews never tells us his name. And he does that, I believe, for a reason. Many people speculate about who the author of Hebrews is. 
but as I said, I, don't, I believe he left his letter anonymous very intentionally. He wanted people, well, by the way, literally, uh, the book of Hebrews is a literary masterpiece. It is extremely well put together as a piece of writing. And he wanted people, as they read his letter, not to walk away from it and say, man, that guy's a good author. He wanted people to walk away from it and say, wow, we have a great Christ. And so he left himself anonymous so people wouldn't credit him. People wouldn't look to him. I think the best way to put it is this. The more of the spotlight we take, the less of the spotlight Jesus gets. The more of the spotlight we take, the less of the spotlight Jesus gets. So the author of Hebrews left himself anonymous to give all of the spotlight to Jesus. In the last bit of background information, the Old Testament quotations in the book come from a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament used by many in that day called the Septuagint. Now, you may wonder, what's this Septuagint thing? The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. At that time, uh, people were sort of rusty in their Hebrew, just like we're rusty in our Hebrew because most of us can't speak it or can't read it. But they spoke Greek in that day, so there was a translation of the, Greek, of the Hebrew Old Testament made into Greek that was called the Septuagint. So that's the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. And when the writer of Hebrews, he quotes a lot of Old Testament verses, he quotes from the Septuagint. He's quoting those verses because he's trying to show that Jesus is the long-awaited, predicted Savior of the Old Testament. But here's what happens when you and I look at those very same verses in our Old Testament. They don't read quite identical to the ones that the author of Hebrews quotes. And you wonder why. Well, our Old Testament is a direct translation from the Hebrew. Hebrew to English. But remember about the verses that he's quoting from the Old Testament in Hebrews. They are from the Hebrew language to the Greek, and then from the Greek, then again to the English. So you've got, you have three languages that are translated across. So during this study, at times we may go back to the Old Testament and you see there's a slight disparity between the way the author of Hebrews quotes it and the way it reads in your Bible. Don't freak out. Just know there's a couple extra languages in there when they're translated across. Well, that ends the background introduction. Let's go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter one that I had asked you to turn to earlier. I'd like you to stand out of reverence for the very word of God, and we're just going to read the first three verses that I'll be teaching on this morning. Follow along with your eyes and your copy of the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That ends the reading of the Word of God. You can be seated. The theme of these opening verses, and in truly in, of the entire book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is greater. 
Let's go ahead and look how this unpacks. The first thing we see is Jesus is a greater word from God. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his sons. The writer of Hebrews is making a comparison between how God spoke to us through the Old Testament prophets in the past and how he has spoken to us by his very son in the present. Now let's begin with the Old Testament prophets. What God did is he literally put his words in their thoughts. He literally put his words in their mouths so they spoke and they wrote literally what were God's words to us. So the Old Testament prophets said exactly what God wanted to speak to us without error. The scriptures tell us this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. People didn't make this stuff up. Where does the prophecy of the Old Testament come from? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So no prophecy originated in someone's thoughts. What happened is God literally put his words into the minds of the prophets and he controlled the mouths of the prophets to say what he wanted spoken. So those prophets were speaking God's words. Isaiah just not, did not get bored one afternoon and say, you know what, I think I'm gonna write some of the Bible before dinner because I have nothing else better to do with my time. That's not the way it happens. Now, um, this is something that we have never experienced all of our thoughts are self-generated. All of our thoughts are self-originated, but not so with the prophets. Their thoughts, they knew when God gave them a thought, and they knew when God gave them a word. This is why over a thousand times in the Old Testament, it says, thus saith the Lord. The prophets were speaking what God had told them to speak. Incidentally, we find that when you go to the false prophets, uh, one of the things you recognize them by is they're not speaking the word of the Lord. They're making up self-generated thoughts. It says that in Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They're speaking visions of their own minds not from the mouth of the Lord. Now it's incredibly amazing to know that God could speak directly to us by giving us his literal words through the prophets. And if you're amazed by that, what's even more amazing is that now God speaks to us by his son. God eliminated the middleman, didn't he? He doesn't speak through a prophet to us. He literally took on flesh and came to speak directly with us by his own son. No longer do we just hear God's spoken words, but now we can literally see God in the flesh through God's son. Look what it says in John 1.14. And the word, 
became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Old Testament now is taken on flesh. God spoke through the prophets by directly and accurately as they spoke words in the Old Testament. Now he speaks directly and accurately by becoming one of us. It says this in John 14, 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. To hear Jesus speak is literally to hear God the Father speak, even though Jesus is now in the flesh. Let me describe it to you this way. There's a show I used to enjoy watching. It was called Extreme Home Makeover. Anybody seen Extreme Home Makeover? Oh, I love it. They always like to take a family that's going through hard times, and what they do is they, they help them out. They give them a completely new house in about one week. One particular episode that comes to mind, there was a father that he was actually serving in the military in Iraq at the time. So the mom was home with all these kids by herself in this rundown house, and they decided to make over the house. And what they did is they made over the house, they brought her up, and you remember how they used to have those two big panels in front of it before they do the big reveal? And they, they had the mom there with the kids, and Ty, who is the host of the show, comes out and he says, I know your husband can't be here for you today. He's in Iraq, but we've arranged to have him on the phone with you. So here he is, and he, she, he hands her a phone, and she's, hi, honey, oh, this is wonderful, and she's talking about it, and they do the reveal, and they pull back the curtain, and she freaks out, and they're walking her through the house, and she's on the phone the whole time, talking to her husband, and she kept saying this, oh, I just wish you were here. I just wish you were here. She had his words, but she really wanted him. Well, the reveal came to an end, and they ended up in the backyard, and the husband said to his wife, honey, I, I really need to go. I have to hang up. So he hung up, and you could see the dejected look come over her face. But see, there was more to the story. The producers had not just arranged to have him on the phone. They had actually flown him back from Iraq. He was in the backyard hiding behind a bush. And as soon as he hung up the phone, he popped out from behind the bush and she freaked out. She ran up to him and she held him and she was so thrilled because you see, it was good to have his words, but it was a thousand times better to have him in the flesh. Folks, it's the same thing for us. It was good when we had the Old Testament, when we had God's exact words to us. But how much better is it now that we have God in the flesh through Jesus Christ? Jesus is greater. Greater than anything God has done in the past and greater than anything God could ever do. Now, the passage we looked at continues to sort of expand upon the greatness of Jesus Christ by giving us six clauses to describe his greatness. The next clause to describe his greatness is that Jesus is the heir of all things. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, whom he appointed to be the heir of all things. An heir is somebody who is designated at a point in time, usually uh, when someone deceases, to receive all of their wealth and all of their assets. They get their inheritance. And what we see here is that Jesus is the one who is designated by God to, at a time in the future, be the one who is in charge of all things that are in existence. Look what the Bible says about this in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and, notice, for him. Paul says that every single thing in existence in the physical world and every single thing in existence in the invisible spiritual world was created by Jesus and ultimately was created for Jesus. He is the heir of all things. Is Jesus getting to be pretty big in your mind? How much greater can you get than the Jesus? To describe the uh, level of authority and power that Jesus holds, Paul sort of teases out the invisible spiritual world he is talking about. He says he is head over thrones or powers and rulers and authorities. What are those things that he's talking about? In rabbinic literature of that day, they had come to realize that there were different ranks and authorities and powers in the angelic world. Just like we have different ranks and levels of authority here in the earthly world. We have guys who are garbage men and we have others who are presidents. Those who are presidents can press the button and start a nuclear war. The garbage man can't do that. They don't have that kind of rank and authority and power. And it's the same thing in the angelic world. And what Paul says, it doesn't matter what rank or level or authority you are at in the angelic world that is invisible to us. Jesus is above all of those things. Nothing is greater than Jesus in the universe. We may not see it that way now, but we will see it that way in the future because he has been designated by God as the heir of all things. Paul teases this out in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, Therefore, speaking of Jesus, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now on earth, we do not see everything yet submitting to Christ. But prophetically, we are told in Psalm chapter 2, which is prophecy about Christ, that all things here on earth will be submitted to Christ. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8 says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the very ends of the earth your possession." The writer of Hebrews says it is sort of impossible to fathom the greatness of Jesus Christ, the heir of all things in the universe, 
is the same one who humbled himself to permanently unite himself with human flesh, to be born to Mary in Bethlehem, and then to live a life, suffer and die on the cross in our place for our sins, so that we, through faith in him, can be exalted to the highest beings in the universe. How much greater can it get than you and I having Jesus? It can't. The writer of Hebrews continues, not only is Christ the heir of all things, Jesus is the creator of the entire universe. It says, through whom also he made the world. When it came to making creation, just so you know, it was actually a team effort by God. God, the Father, he planned the creation. The scriptures say that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, actually carried out the fashioning of the entire creation. Jesus made everything. And Hebrews, or Genesis, rather, chapter 1, verse 2, says the Holy Spirit was also involved in creation. He was hovering over the waters. So we've seen so far that Hebrews says that Jesus is the one who fashioned everything. Colossians, we just saw under the previous point, also says that Jesus is the one who made everything. And in the Gospel of John, we read again that Jesus is the one who made everything in the universe. John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, that is Jesus, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Well, that sounds good, but then the question becomes, so Jesus made everything, but how much stuff is there that Jesus made? How big is the universe that Jesus made? Stephen Hawking wrote a book called A Brief History of Time, and I put the quote in your outlines for you right here. This is what he says about our particular uh, uh, universe. He says, speaking about us, we are an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks like a swirl in a pastry roll, but it is 100,000 light years in diameter. Our galaxy is therefore 600 trillion miles wide. Our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million other ones that can be seen with modern telescopes. And each one of those galaxies contains some 100,000 million stars. And the average distance between each galaxy is three million light years. And Jesus is the one who made all of it. Let me show you a photo. This is our galaxy. You are here. Somewhere under that little dot, there is a blue dot, and that's our entire planet. But what amazes me is this. In the entire vast universe, God took special interest in us, in you and me. When sin entered the universe and Satan rebelled, and one-third, it says, one-third of all the angelic beings joined him in that rebellion and became demons, God did not provide any way of escape for them. But for you and me, he did. In this little tiny blue speck called earth, he cared enough about us 
that he devised a plan that the Son of God who fashioned this vast universe would take on flesh and become one of us in our universe. That he would ultimately be born in Bethlehem. Then he would die in our place for our sins, paying for our sins so we can be adopted as his brothers and sisters. The most blessed beings in the entire vast universe. That's us. All through Jesus and we do not deserve any of it. Jesus is greater than anything God has ever done. (laughs) There is nothing greater than God could ever do than what he has done for us through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews also says that Jesus sustains everything by his power. He upholds the universe, it says, by the word of his power. Now, sustaining things is different than creating things. Anyone who has children will tell you this. Creating them was the easy part. It's sustaining them through the next 18 plus years that is the hard part, right? Uh Uh-huh. Well, this is the same thing. Creating the entire universe was the easy part for Jesus. Sustaining the universe is the hard part, but yet that is something he does. Every single thing that is going on in our galaxy and in the other galaxies is being sustained by Jesus. The planets are regular in their motion because Jesus is made sure of it. Everything that happens on our planet with regard to weather systems and earthquakes and all that goes on is controlled by Jesus. There is nothing that is out from under his fingerprint. As I was thinking about this, I kept thinking about the stuff that we see in the news nowadays. Remember the world is gonna end in 12 years if we don't go green? Like we're the ones sustaining the earth? or we're the ones that can kill the earth? Trust me, we're not gonna be able to kill it and we can't maintain it. Jesus is doing that job. And he's much better at it than we ever will be. Now, don't misunderstand me and I'm saying that we shouldn't be responsible in the way we do things. Obviously, we should be. But just understand that the future of this planet is not in our hands. The future of this planet is in Jesus' hands because he is the one who sustains and maintains all things. Now, um, as I was also thinking about this, this doesn't just apply globally. This applies to us personally. He is sustaining you and me and meeting our daily needs as well. We can find this when you go to the Old Testament. Remember the Israelites It says in the book of Jude that it was Jesus who took the Israelites out of Egypt and Jesus was the one who was maintaining them in the the wilderness because they went into the desert where there is nothing to eat. So what does Jesus start doing? He starts giving them their daily bread. Do you remember what the daily bread was in the wilderness? Anybody? Manna. Bread from heaven. But it was interesting the way this worked because this manna was there every morning, but what happens if they tried to store it up for more than one day? It it, it rotted. It didn't work. But remember, there was one day a week when God gave them more than enough manna for that day. 
It was the day before the Sabbath. He gave them double the manna that they could store up, and on that day when they stored it up, did it rot? No. It sustained for two days. You see how Jesus was providing the daily bread for his people in the wilderness? And he even knew when he had to give them more than normal daily bread to provide for their needs. The thing we need to realize is Jesus has never changed that plan. Jesus is in charge of providing your daily bread and my daily bread. He is the one who provides us everything we need to walk with him and to please him. (laughs) This Jesus, who is the heir of all things in the universe, is the one who created all things in the universe. He is the one who is sustaining all things in the universe and even sustaining you and me every day. Yet he's also the same one who humbled himself to permanently join himself to human flesh, to be born in Bethlehem, to completely identify with us so he could speak to us, then die for us and save us. How much greater could it get? Now, Jesus is also called the radiance of God's glory. The writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The writer of Hebrews uses two parallel clauses to say the exact same thing because he's trying to underline the point he's making. He doesn't have a bold on his typewriter. He has to say it twice to make sure it's understood because it's so important. Let's look at these clauses. Number one, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. For all you who are scientific nerds, you're going to love this. He is trying to make a point between the difference with a radiated light and reflected light. Radiated light contains the essence of what it is radiating from. Reflected light does not contain the essence of what is being reflected from. The easiest way to describe that is maybe uh, looking at the sun. The sun is burning at approximately 15,000 degrees right now. It is a long way away, and thankfully it is if it's burning at 15,000 degrees. But yet the light of the sun travels through space, it enters our atmosphere, it hits our fields, and it grows our corn and our soybeans. And it also warms the planet. It warms us. And if we stay out too long in the sun, we end up with something called sunburn because some of the fire of the sun is radiated through the light of the sun and we get burned from the sun because radiated light contains the essence of what it is radiating from. It contains the fire from it. Reflected light is different. And maybe to think about that, you need to look at the moon. The moon doesn't contain any light in and of itself, yet you look at it in the sky at night and it's, it's there. It's lighting up the earth. But moonlight does not contain any essence of moon in it, does it? Nobody comes away after a night outside going, I just received a moon burn. Because reflected light doesn't contain any of the essence of what is reflecting it. 
Now, when the writer of Hebrews comes along and says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, he's saying Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God, but Jesus actually possesses and emits the very glory of God. That means that Jesus is God because he is radiating the very glory of God from his essential being. That is a huge statement on Jesus' identity. And then he follows it up by saying the same thing a different way. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Historically, those Greek terms were originally used to describe what would happen when you take hot wax and stamp a seal into it. And if you've ever done that before, it's amazing when you put a, a seal into hot wax, how what happens is that wax takes on a perfect image of the seal. So you have two identical things, but yet they are two distinctly different things. But they're identical. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is identical in image and essence to God, but yet he is distinct from God. He is God, but he is distinctly different from God, the Father. So what he's trying to say here is think about who we have when we have Jesus Christ taking on flesh, the one who is the heir of all things in the universe, the one who created all things in the universe, the one who sustains all things in the universe, the one who is radiating God's glory, who is identical to God the Father's image and nature, is the one who took on flesh and humbled himself to die on the cross for you and me. In Jesus, we have what is much greater than anything God has ever done. And in Jesus, there is nothing greater that God could ever do. We continue. Oh, he says this by the way, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is talking about the new creation uh, in the book of Revelation, the new creation where you have a new heavens and a new earth, and the new capital city called the New Jerusalem. Incidentally, in the new creation, there is no light coming from the S-U-N in the sky. All of the light in the new creation comes from the S-O-N, who radiates God's glory that is the light we will live by in that creation. If you want to think what it was like, go back to the Gospel of Mark, where we've been in for a while. Remember the transfiguration that took place on Mount Hermon? Peter, James, and John went to the top of the mountain, and he was transfigured before them. And what happened was Jesus finally showed forth his glory, because prior to that, he had veiled his glory. And what did they say Jesus was like? His face was like the sun, it was so bright. That same face will be the sun giving light in the new creation. That is the Jesus who came for us. Next point he makes is that Jesus purifies us from sin. He says, after making purification from sin. So what happens is that the tense here we need to know, by the way, is very interesting. It is a completed in the past tense, but it has ramifications in the present tense. 
In other words, what he is saying here is when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all of our sins in our past. But get this, it is so great that he even paid for our sins that we have yet to commit in the future. The Old Testament sacrificial system didn't work that way. Remember they had to keep re-sacrificing, doing it again and again and again. Yet when we come to Jesus, his final words on the cross are this. It is finished. The work is done. In Greek, it says tetelestai, which literally means paid in full. He has paid for all of our sins in one fell swoop, great sacrifice of himself. Sins of our past, sins of our present, and even the sins of our future. It cannot get any better than this. Jesus is greater than God has ever done. And what greater thing could God ever do than what he has done for us through Jesus? But even better, Jesus does not just pay for our sin judicially before God, but he has paid for our sins experientially. The way I can describe it is this. Does anybody have a stain in their carpet at home? Stains you've tried to get out, this refused to come out? Well, if you don't, we've had some nasty stains in our life because every stain has a story. It reminds you of something that went wrong and you cannot get it out. Our stain actually was in a chair. We had this old junkie chair when we were first married, and it was one of those houses that was sort of rustic, lots of mice in it. And we had kids, which means lots of crumbs in it with the mice, which brought even more in. Well, apparently there was crumbs in this chair, and the crumbs had gotten under the cushion of the chair, and a mouse had gone under the cushion to eat the crumbs. Now, what happened next is that somebody in our family sat in the chair and flattened the mouse. So we have a dead mouse under the cushion, but we didn't know that. And he was there for a long time. And so you start to say, man, something just doesn't smell right about the house, but I don't know what it is. Until eventually we lifted up the cushion, and trust me, it was a stain a rotten decomposed stain that no matter what we tried to do wasn't going to come out stain that eventually led to us getting rid of the chair. But isn't that the same way it is in our lives? There's things we do, sins we've done. We're filled with guilt. We're filled with shame. We look at ourselves in the mirror and we're disgusted with what we've become. It's like a stain. We just can't get rid of the past in our mind. We wish there was some way to get it out. And through Jesus, there is. I said, Jesus is not just completely forgive us judicially before God, but he forgives us experientially in this life. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. 
The way Jesus takes out the stain of our past and our sin is he makes us into a literally new person when we come before God through him. He remakes us, taking away our old nature and giving us a new nature that loves Jesus and loves holiness and loves righteousness. In fact, the identity of who we are in Jesus is now so much greater than we ever were before him. That's why he makes purification for sin and he doesn't just purify us judicially, he purifies us experientially in this life, making us in the new creations. Last thing to tell you. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. It says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right now, he is at the highest place in the entire universe. And he is there in the flesh and blood, resurrected and alive. And here's what it says is so cool about him being in this highest place in the universe at the right hand of God the Father. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Folks, what could be better than the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh who is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you and me. Who would you rather have pray for you and intercede for you and plead your case to God the Father? Could there be anybody better than Jesus? Absolutely not. My friends, we are so blessed. Jesus is greater than anything God has ever done in the past and it is so great. There's nothing greater than God could ever do than what he has already done through us through Jesus Christ. The heir of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who is in essence God radiating his glory. That is what we have in Jesus. My friends, I hope you this morning, I've, this morning I've helped you see Jesus and I've helped you savor Jesus and I'd encourage you, fix your eyes on Jesus this wonderful Christmas season. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.